Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Ken Jacobson. Today, we had the great pleasure to speak with Jessica Bashir about her film, Faya Dai. I would love to say this film was just a, a spiritual journey of a spiritual connection to a land, to the self, through the prism of chat that opens up about oppression and healing. Yeah, Faya Day is just an extraordinary film, and it's beautiful, it's immersive, it's hypnotic, it's transportive, it's basically everything you could ever want from the cinema. Jessica is an Ethiopian-Mexican filmmaker based in Brooklyn, New York, and Faya Day is her feature documentary debut. The film had its world premiere at the 2021 Sundance Film Festival. It's been nominated for five Cinema Eye Honors Awards and two Critics' Choice Awards, a Gotham Independent Film Award nomination, and it's been named to the shortlist features list for both Doc NYC and the IDA Documentary Awards. It's winner of three prizes at the Full Frame Documentary Film Festival and also winner of top prizes at Vision du Real. Her previous films include Kings, which is a narrative short from 2018, Hirat, a documentary short from 2017, and Heroin, which had its world premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival. Her first film, He Who Dances on Wood, in 2016, had its world premiere at Hot Docs and won Best International Documentary Short at the Edmonton Film Festival and the Jury Award at the Anchorage International Film Festival. The film had its theatrical premiere at the New Director's New Film Series in New York City and is now getting a theatrical distribution in New York with Janice Films. So we definitely would urge everyone to see this film in a theater. If you like this conversation, please follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, we talk with Jessica Bashir about her film, Faya Dai. Jessica, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, Jessica. Good to meet you, and thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, Ken, thank you. This is really nice. Why do you make documentary films? I am incredibly inspired by our humanity. I'm incredibly inspired by life and how it unfolds and how it teaches so much. A relationship that you can have with someone, it's so precious, truly. And I love having those relationships with people brings me closer to who I really am as well. Congratulations, Jessica. It's an amazing film. I think I could probably watch it three or four more times and and still discover more things that just blow me away visually, orally, in terms of theme and the trance-like state that you create. I wanted to just start with the title, Faya Dai. Where does that come from? Thank you. That is really nice. Faya Day is the hymnal that farmers, the Oromo farmers, they chant as they harvest the chat. I didn't really know what it meant when I first heard it. And I really didn't ask either, but it did something to me when I first heard it. And I always knew that was going to be the, the title because it has so much energy of itself. And when I found out what it meant, which means, depending on what accent and where you are, it, it means give birth to wellness, give birth to health, you're going to be all right. It's an encouraging, like a mantra that they repeat as they chant. And again, it had so much energy and that energy that I also kind of needed to sustain this project for so long. It really, every time when you're facing so much hardship in a way, I always referred back to that chant and, and it truly sustained me. The people that are depicted here, the Oromo, as I understand, they're the largest ethnic group in Ethiopia. There are about 35 million. And despite being the largest ethnic group, as I understand it from your film, they are oppressed. They suffer discrimination. Can you explain that situation a bit? The communities that are depicted in the film are mostly Oromo and the Harare communities. The Oromo have been historically marginalized. There are a lot of historical grievances that have not been addressed and that they're fighting for. And mostly has to do with the land. 
these are questions of land, where their lands have been expropriated, have created so much displacement, and giving the farmer like, you know, token something in order to continue this globalized, creating that land for investment and, and so forth. And that's what they were fighting for, mainly around 2015 to 2018. They sustained an incredible and a very courageous protest against the government at the time where many perished in the thousands. Can you situate us in the country in terms of the geographic areas where the film was shot? Ethiopia is in the Horn of Africa. The areas that I shot are around Harar, and that is to the east side of the country. Harar and parts of Oromia as well. But Oromia extends from the east to the west. So this would be East Oromia, um, Galemso, but towns like that. But mostly it was in and around Harar and the towns that surround. And you grew up in Ethiopia, correct? Yes. And did you grow up in and around the, the region where, where you shot the film, where it takes place? Yeah, I grew up in Harar. I lived there until I was 16. That's when we left. And, and I grew up in um, the time of the Cold War. So around that time, to just be a teenager, you grow up really fast when there is a war happening in your town and around. So... Yeah, that is where I grew up. That is where my friends were, family. That was everything to me until we had to leave. And it was a very sudden uprooting. So many families go through that today when there is a political turmoil that expels you one way or another. That creates something almost that is very hard to talk about, especially the adults. My father didn't talk about it for forever, truly. And so you live with that experience, that pent-up experience where your life has gone up in fragments, your relationships, everything. And this is pre-internet or social media. So (laughs) there wasn't a way to, you know, somehow connect. There was none of that. And so there's a silence that stays with you no matter what. So for me, going back was always trying to find a way to sort of remember put together, again, build a certain bridge, even if it's in the mind or in the heart, that connects you back to that place. Did you understand why the family was leaving when you moved? Yeah, we were living under the communist regime, the Dirk communist regime at the time. And at the time, you couldn't even think about leaving. You would be killed, like literally any dissent would be completely not tolerated. But at the time, the Mexican ambassador was able to find a scholarship for my father to go back to Mexico and do a specialization. So that was a way for my father to take us out of the country because it was incredibly repressive and and incredibly violent in a lot of ways. So that was his way of keeping his family together and somehow protecting. And yes, I knew, uh, we all knew what kind of world we were living in. And so when I was told that we were leaving in 72 hours, I, of course, you just go for it and understanding why, and also feeling that you probably are the lucky one, which is true in a lot of ways. And yet at the same time, there is also this other part that you end up going through because of that rapture. Your mother is Mexican, is that right? Yeah. So you moved to to Mexico City or? We moved to Mexico City. When did filmmaking enter your life? When did you first become interested in film? I grew up, I have to say, in a military base next to the Russian military base and the Cuban military base. And they were literally one barbed wire away from my house. So every night they had open air movies. (laughs) And most of these films were actually war films between Russia and Germany. And I guess it was a little bit of that propaganda film that they were playing every night to maintain the morale of their people. We would just cross the barbed wire every night and we were allowed to watch these movies. How much did that have to do with me wanting to make a film? I don't know. But all I know is that 
going to sit and watch those movies, those were the events uh, of our lives as kids. We didn't have TV, we didn't have radio, we didn't have any of that, but we did have those movies at night that even though we didn't understand because they were all in Russian, but it didn't really matter. We understood, we cried, <laughs> we cried in the films, we laughed in the films and we were together. And that sense of togetherness, and even though it was about war, and war was raging in our background. So I don't know, it just made us feel less alone, at least me. I always had this, it was like an indignation that I had inside of why politics was the way that was, and how that somehow disrupts families, like literally. So I thought I wanted to, to, to study politics. <laughs> so, so I did for a year at Berkeley and I realized that was not, that was not the way. I came back to, to Los Angeles and met Tashoma Gabriel, who was um, one of the chair of UCLA film school. I couldn't afford to go to film school, but he told me, well, you know what? Just watch movies, go into the film criticism department and just watch some movies if that's all that you can do, you know? I ended up doing that. Let's talk a bit about the film and there are so many things going on and we could enter it in so many ways, but probably we should talk a bit about Cat. The people here, it's clear that their livelihood, they grow it, they harvest it, they package it, they sell it, but it also seems to be a scourge to the community. What is cat? They call it chat, but I, I, I don't know why. It's written, every time I see it written, it's cats. I think that's how they call it in mostly Arab-speaking countries. Mm. But in Hara, we call it chat. Chat is a green leaf that has a stimulant. It has a certain amount of ketamine. It's something that has been used around Harar for, for centuries, truly. Growing up, for us, it, it was something that we're very much used to seeing. It was part of the trade of the commerce, and it was part of a lot of people's lives, especially that walled city. And most of these merchants were the Oromo farmers. So that has always been there. Our neighbor, Kasu, uh, uh, always was walking around. You would see her coming home with her chat. And, and, and I tell you, it was part of the culture. The thing that shocked me for me, or the thing that I found incredibly interesting is when I went back for the first time, the landscape, first of all, driving from Addis to Harar, there were no longer sorghum and, and coffee that was no longer there. It was just chat. It was just green. And that already, just the landscape, it's, it tells you something. But once I got there and connecting with friends, I started to realize that just many of them before in the past, because we see my friend's grandparents or aunts or aunties, you know, engaging in these, it's a ritual. And it was always like a means to an end. The farmer always used it in the morning. They call it ijebana, the, the eye opener. They would chew just a little bit. It would give them a lot of energy that they need to work you know, on the farms. In the city, people would go home to have lunch and then chew just a little bit and then go back to work. But now it was basically the end itself. There, there was no means to an end. The unemployment had gone way up. And you have all of this youth not necessarily having anything to do, incredibly frustrated and, and definitely under a regime that ruled with iron fist. There was no space of free speech. <laughs> there was none of that. And so people started to create these or use these rituals as a space where they could, you know, probably speak of politics and what was going on. So many interesting things started to happen around chat. The first one was, like I said, the youth getting together in these spaces. There are very intimate spaces. One, using it almost as a rebellion, but most importantly also to kill time. The aim was to kill time. And by that, it was to kill that frustration, to kill that time that reminded you of the fact that your youth was being spent without being able to live to its potential of something that you could do and where a day goes by and it's almost like a dread. 
So by noon, people running and to try to get whatever they can so that they can sit in a place and chew it away, literally. There were so many, so many changes in that sense. And the understanding that I had of this came with time. At the beginning, all you could see is the surface level. Of course, you can see the economy evolving around it. Of course, the farms full of chat. And, but that's very surface level. But then when you go deeper and you spend more time, you start understanding sort of the socio-political aspects that is driving this, this boom in, in, in the chat trade in a way. But I wanted to say that in the film, I truly try to contextualize it because within the spirituality, because more than anything, chat has always had that spiritual connection. This is how people communicate. The Sufi moms used it for a long time to, to get closer to their creators so that they could stay up longer, so that they can chant and offer their prayers for a longer period of time or all night long and have the sense of living a certain eternity. And I have to say, plants around the world that ultimately go into a mainstream and they lose their context their original context and they become you know commodified this one was also always connected to that spirituality and everything that comes from that also came with that with that offering to god the film is clearly very spiritual and there's a sense of awe and mystery that you convey we always like to talk to filmmakers about the opening scenes in their movies, because first of all, it's so difficult often to figure out as a filmmaker, how do I want to open my film? And also it does set the course for the film that follows. You have a very evocative, absolutely gorgeous scene. I think it's one shot of a figure and we can't really see who it is at first emerging from a mist-like setting. But I really want to have you Please describe the opening shot and tell us how you decided that, yes, this is how I want to open my movie. Oh, thank you. That scene to me, it really embodied what the youth is going through, that uncertainty within which they are existing. The boy, actually, the crosses is Muhammad himself, the one that I end up following throughout the film. And coming out of that confusion because he is also very young he's just waking up to what the world is offering in a way and what he's finding and so for me to come out of that mist and having those ideas of how can I actually find a way in this life and him deciding to leave later on as many of our youth are choosing to do I felt like I saw that in that shot the film is shot in black and white, and it's shot in a very painterly style. Can you talk about how you came up with your aesthetic approach? I think that there are many things that informed the vision that I had of the film and how I wanted to approach it. To begin with, I was shooting, I shot the film, and I felt that was very much guided by the love that I was receiving from the community and by that environment, which was very embracing. In the camera, I felt like I was responding to that, which I was very generously given. So that was one thing. Another is, there's something that always spoke to me very much about the learnings that I had from the Sufi moms in the walled city where I spent so much time. Some of them knew my father from before. My father was a doctor and he was their doctor. I think that's where a lot of the acceptance and the love that they gave me comes from. But as I was there, I feel that they truly are the ones who were teaching me about this vision through their Sufi teachings. They would speak so much about about time, about seeing and the ways of seeing, about truly divesting yourself from voices, from voices that 
were keeping you from truly listening to yourself. And by that, they mean the creator. By divesting yourself from those voices, you could be closer and closer. And I think that what they're talking about is also the ego, because their whole chant and, and offering is to truly empty themselves so that they can be in communion with what is true, in communion with what is. Another thing that they were talking about was in terms of time, how in preconceived notions or anticipation, let's just say, they would give an example for the walled city. It's so labyrinthic, correct? In that when you are walking in that walled city, you don't know what is coming next. You don't have a thorough line. And so you learn to be present, fully present. And they say, that's why we have the inshallah in our mouth, because everything is God willing. In doing that, in being present, you let go of anticipation or control. Control because you have to let go of that because you have to be trusting. If you trust, you'll be guided. When you come with preconceived ideas, this is what they're saying to me, okay? (laughs) When you come with preconceived ideas, when you want to control how things are going to go, you are going to miss all of what the creator is offering and putting in front of you because you're so busy thinking about your preconceived idea or whatever it is that you have in your mind. So that's why you need to empty yourself so that you can truly listen, not just with your eyes, not just with your ears, but with your soul, with your body, and so that you're able to respond. So in order to go to that place, that's what the prayers are. That's what the prayer is all about. That touched me so much. It moved me so much. It taught me of life, about life for myself. And I wanted to truly like, really, I was trying to find a way, how do I bring that into the film? How do I bring that into the form, into the image, into the whole being of this film? If I could bring a tiny fraction of what they are saying, I would be the happiest person because that meant everything to me. The film, I think, challenges our preconceptions it does so in many ways. But in the first 10 minutes or so of the film, I don't think we see a face. I think we see figures, we see arms and hands. Of course, we see fire, but I don't think we see a face. And this continues throughout the film in many ways. Why did you choose not to show like a human face in the beginning? When we were putting together the film and editing the film, that's when I started to observe what I was doing <laughs> when I was shooting and understand why I was shooting in that way. When we are sitting together and having a communion and spending time, the people are being incredibly generous. I also felt that was also a way of protecting and maintaining their dignity in a lot of ways. Because first of all, not a lot of people uh, are willing to come and, and share this and also being seen, you know, chewing because it does have a certain stigma in some places, you know. I felt that th- there was a part of me that was protective in a way. There was also the language that I was trying to bring into the film. This is not a linear narrative. This is something else. So what makes this world? What is this world that I'm creating here? And what is in that world? What could guide me? What could serve as portal into these stories? It was a very intuitive process in the way that I was shooting, in the way that we were editing everything. And and that intuition also was a way of letting go of any control and just allow that which guides to move everything forward and not necessarily questioning why and why and why, trusting instead this is what, you know, because there are many scenes that you're like, oh my gosh, I missed this, I missed that, I could have, or this or that. 
But then at some point I arrived to the point where like, no, I didn't need to film all of that. It was just this. It really does transport you. My experience in the early scenes, especially in the chat fields, you really feel like you're there. You really feel like you're amongst the people and you also feel like you're in another world at the same time. So it's very effective on multiple levels. But I did find myself at the same time, it seems like a little bit of a closed world at first. I was like, for some reason, there was something in me that was like, I want to see the other world. And I was looking for the English script on the t-shirts and the cell phone call, which of course takes place off screen. And I'm like, is that a watch on his wrist? Anything to make me feel like they're involved in a broader world. And of course, as the movie opens up, you do begin to see the town and the city and the, the film. Could you talk just a little bit about creating that world? In retrospect, I, I realized that a lot of what I was shooting truly was reflecting something outside of time. And in retrospect, I can say now, in having this conversation also with myself, that I feel that a lot of that was also part of the healing. Because to try to look for something timeless, it's something that feels like it's timeless, it also f- was a way to, to overcome that fragmentation of our lives that became just this whole being uprooted because of all of these politics. It just feels like you, your life isn't fragments. Do you know? You don't have an, a thorough narrative. In a way, if there is what you're trying to do is in memory, by using memory, putting something together back again. And in doing so, you realize that time starts to take all kinds of dimensions. It's never like that linear time. Memory with the present, with the supposed past and future desires, dreams, all of it exists at the same time. I was looking for those timeless or what I felt were giving me those image of timelessness. One, because they were very healing to me. And two, because in having these timelessness, it it was easier to not have that insistence on narrative in your mind. Many of the lines of this film resonate deeply. And one is, when the young man is talking about his trip to Europe and he says something along the lines of, you only carry your memories with you. And that seems to be more than just about his trip. It seems to be about the film itself. Yeah. Memories is all you travel with is what he says. Yeah. That really moved me so much because it is so true. Here I am back after so many years and I am I've been traveling with those memories because in the absence of any uh, of those worlds that have disappeared you don't have them I always think of those people that go back to their parents house sometimes and they find oh you know look at my old bed and this is where I grew up and that's everything for many of us that doesn't exist and yeah so you travel with those memories. And in a lot of your life, you understand it as you're experiencing it, that it's not going to be there. It's just going to be a memory. You obviously met some incredible people through the course of making the film. And I wondered if you could tell us a bit about, for instance, Mohammed, who's a young teenager who is in a number of the scenes throughout the movie. He is such an incredible young man, young kid. He's now he's 16, but I met him when he was 11, 10 or 11. I met him when, because every time I'm shooting and I'm walking around with my little tripod or camera, I'm always surrounded by kids. Anywhere I go, like kids gravitate to me. And I loved it because they were also curious. They also wanted to learn. What are you doing? What are you looking at? Why are you shooting that tree? What's up in that tree? And in a way, those are questions that I asked myself, but they were coming to me through the children. Muhammad was one of those kids. But then we became close because I noticed that when the kids would come and probably hang out for an hour or so or two hours and then leave, go back to their homes. But the kid that was not leaving was Muhammad. 
he was coming very early and we would have breakfast together and then lunch together and then dinner together. And then Muhammad just wanted to hang out. And I, I was worried for him because I was like, your parents are going to be looking for you. They're going to be worried about you. Don't you have to go? And a lot of the times he never said anything. He's, oh no, please, can I stay a little more? But then one day I told him, you need to take me to your home because I need to meet your parents because you're spending too much time here and they need to know. And that's when, you know, he told me about his life, that his mom had left looking for work, that his dad was sometimes very violent because of his mood swings, because of the addiction to chat. And a lot of the kids that were spending time with me had similar stories. They just all had similar stories. And that's just the way it is. And also, I feel like he kind of like saw the mom in me because I also have a child who's only two years younger than him. And to me, it always felt so like, my God, I can't imagine my child having to make those decisions of going away by herself to Yemen and walk and, and take those treacherous roads by herself with other kids, because this is what was happening in Hadar. So because these kids were hanging out with me, I learned so much about all the youth that we end up losing through Yemen. And what happens in those roads about human trafficking that is happening in those roads. They literally woo the kids and, and tell them that they're going to take them for free. And they end up using them for organ trafficking and, and all these horrible things. Muhammad had tried already to go, but his father brought him back. His father is a policeman. And one time th there was a whole memo in the police station where they were talking about these human traffickers and how they were going to apprehend them at a certain place by the border. And then the father went home. And when Muhammad never arrived that night, he realized that he was probably part of those kids that these human traffickers were taking away. So he drove in the middle of the night with the other policemen they found them in a holding house very close to the border where they were about to take them. They apprehended everyone, they brought them back. And the next day they were let go because these human traffickers are very, very powerful and, and they have a lot of money. So this is what's going on. That left me, I don't know, just, just so indignated about what's happening politically in the country. Through your getting to know Muhammad and your interactions with him, I think there is a theme that emerges, which is the generational differences in how young people are viewing their place in the culture and society and what they're seeing among their parents' generation and their parents' parents' generation and having to make the decision about, do I want to stay here or do I want to leave the country? And there's some great dialogue and discussion between various folks about that whole issue. There are all these generational conversations going on and decisions to be made by young people that have profound consequences. This film for me was definitely a process that over time I learned many things. Mohammed, like I said, I met him about six years ago. So early, because I started this film in 2010, about 2014, I already knew about some of these predicaments. I, I, I had not met the person. And, and in a way, I want to go back to that spirituality in a sense and what happens when you let go of this control. I don't want to control a certain narrative. I it truly, I had to allow it to emerge. And that's how it happened with most of the people that are in this film. And that's how it happened with Muhammad as well. So I, I learned about this about like around 2014, 2015. 
And in 2015 is when the Oromo peaceful protests started with the youth. These are the Oromo youth movement of, of peaceful protesting started around 2015, where these students were killed in the protests. But not only that, they were persecuted in the schools. These are students. All of a sudden, you had a lot of students that were disappearing into the jails. They were coming to get them at the universities. Some of the youth that in the film that speak about this torture that they went through, it's them. These are the survivors because a lot of them were either killed or were in jail. You were asking about when I found out about this transgenerational story. So yeah, so imagine by now, every time I go, I'm sitting with, with, with the imams one of these days and imagine how many rituals we've done together all the time. But this one time, I don't know, I paid attention because in their invocation and in their prayer, they mentioned Khadr and Ilyas and Azur Karneini that I've heard it 500 times, but it never occurred to me to ask. You know, I thought it was part of the prayer, but that day I asked, so who are we invoking? Who are these uh, people? And then they told me this beautiful story of this old imam, Azur Karneini, who at his old age, fear enters him. And when fear enters him, he prays to his creator and asks, please, could you take this fear away? I am ready to die. Why do I need to have fear at this old age? And so his creator responds to him in a dream and he tells him that he has to go and find Maul Hayat, Maul Hayat, which is the water of eternal life. And so he goes on that journey to find a remedy for fear because fear is a disease too. <laughs> spiritual disease in a way like when I heard that story I was just so moved by by so much of it because it's still it, it is the story of today it is the story of ever it's one of those stories of all time fear is a, a malaise of the soul and we always are trying to find a remedy a healing from it to ward off the fears. What don't we do in this world <laughs> in order to ward off fears? But in his journey to look and, and to find this water of Molhayat, he was so blinded by fear that he couldn't think of anyone else. He was only thinking about himself. That's another thing that fear does. It makes you selfish. So he didn't find the water of Molhayat. Khadr and Elias found it. And they became daylight and night. While he, when he arrived, the water was dry. And because he cried as a consolation, the creator instead gave him chat. Because once he got there and he saw that the place was dry, he understood that he was being punished in a way for being selfish. He also realized that the reason why he was afraid why fear had entered him because he never had children he was afraid that no one would remember him after he died so his creator brought him chat and he said plant this somewhere from now on whoever chose this is going to remember you and that is exactly what is happening in these rituals people invoke them and remember their names I heard this from the imams, but then I started to ask other people, just random people, even mommy knows the story. So it is in the consciousness of most people living around there. So I felt that had to be part of the film, that had to be all of what connects this to somewhere where it could reverberate some history too. Yeah, I mean, it's remarkable how much of the film comes out of that that legend. We have the darkness and the light, which I think is reflected in the black and white images of the film and the use of light and shadow. We have the water imagery coming out of that story and the drying up of lakes. And then we have chat. So it's almost all there in that one legend. Is there something about water and the drying up of water that 
is yet another thing that you discovered over these 10 years. Oh, yeah. One of the first things that shook me very much to the core was the, the drying of Haramaya, the lake. That's where we grew up. Every holiday, every marriage, every wedding, every everything was at the lake. People went to the lake. There was one small restaurant. That's the only place where you can go and eat fish. It was an event. There were boats and there were fishermen and and all of that was gone, as you see it in the film. It's just completely gone. That is very shocking in a way. It hurts very much so. I try to understand and ask many people around. There is the University of Haramaya that is right next to the lake and spoke with so many of the teachers there that talked about how this climate change had done this, how they had been warned in a way, how they knew that this was coming and that there was nothing that they could do to rescue it, how that also affected in turn the choice of the farmer, the choice of the farmer who's trying to survive. The farmers are not getting rich with that. I spent so much time with so many families of the farmers. These are not people that are getting rich. They are responding to a demand. They are responding to what they can do. Many of them, it was not just that one person that speaks of coffee. Many of them speak of coffee in a, in a very nostalgic way, where this was part of them. They had to let go of that because it was no longer sustainable. The inflation, the unemployment, all of these things, we're having everything to do with this commodification of chat in so many levels. And to me, I wanted to, as much as I could, give a certain breadth of how this was playing out. I think one of the ways you do that very effectively is charting sort of the disruption of love. And love is very important in this film. Many of the songs are about love, and we have the story of Jamila and the young man who'd gone to Europe, I believe. They talk about how they'd loved each other for a long time, but it does not seem like they're going to be able to get together. And Jamila says something pretty profound, I think, which is something along the lines of when you spend time apart from someone this way, you don't know what they're thinking. For me, this film is a love story. <laughs> I want to say it's a love story in many levels, not just the personal story of Jamila, or many who are going through this. The fact that her love had to leave, the fact that he had to flee the political persecution, the fact that this was a time in which she was probably going to see him, but she has complete uncertainty again, like you said, because you don't know what happens when you are apart for such a long time. It was a way also of illuminating how this political repression in a way was tugging at the social fabric in every possible way. Whether it was the students that had to let go of school altogether, whether because they were in jail or, you know, and the separations that this create. Also the mother, the mother who is there perhaps dreaming of a son maybe coming back, having memories of that or even the older couple who are separated in a way and in their own orbits, they are medicating themselves. Can you talk about Hashim Abdi? He's the, the older man that young boy is sent off to get chat for him. And he's clearly seems like a holy man. He's reading scripture. He's got a remarkable face and demeanor. What was it like to spend time with him? He is, again, yet another person that I met by chance, which is not by chance. But anyways, I met him at a wedding and he was the one who was helping everything in that wedding situation. And from the moment we met, I, I, I asked him about him and then we lost touch. And again, in another instance, I didn't know where to find him. I had forgotten his name. But in another instance, I was standing with an imam 
Muhammad Hashim, which is another one. And here comes Hashim Abdi with his chat. <laughs> so we got introduced again. And that's when I started to spend time with him. Something that he said to me is like, you know, I knew something was going to happen. I just didn't know what it was. But I think this is the moment. I, he said, I knew there was something with us that, I don't know. In spending time with him, what I am so grateful for is how he was generous. This is what he was offering. This is what he felt. We had a conversation about, like I told him, I'm doing this film and he asked what it was about. I told him I'm talking about Jad, mostly. I have to say that this film was a collaboration because I was allowing myself to be guided by the community what they would like to say, what they felt about this. That's all he needed to hear. He said, okay, enough. I, I, I don't want to hear anymore. So whenever you want, just come. And that's what happened in the film. He said this poem. I was telling him that Muhammad was trying to find out from all of his friends how to leave because that was what Muhammad was doing in life. I told him Muhammad also wants to go. So what do you have to say to him? And whatever came out, that's what he had to say to him. That's how he felt about it. That also, he also felt about many of his kids who now chew, because again, everybody in that labyrinthic place does, most people. And this is how he felt about his own children. So whatever he felt he couldn't convey to his children, he was trying to say this to Muhammad. This film is a veritable feast of sight and sound, but it also invokes another sense very effectively, and that's touch. We see a lot of hands in the film, and we see scenes that involve touch. The one that really stands out is when the two young men are making the wall. We see them in the mud, creating the plaster, and then we see them throwing and touching it. And Could you talk about the importance of touch in the film? I felt that throughout the time that I was shooting very delicately, I saw how they were holding the chat, for example. Every time when someone is sitting there, it doesn't matter. It's just a delicate way of handling the sleeve. And everybody has their own style in a way. And I feel like in a way, the, the delicate way they feel about the sleeve comes through visually in the way they touch it with their hand. When it comes to that scene that you were talking about with the mud, I felt that it, it really was all about land. What the Oromo youth are fighting for is land. And what they want is to be able to live in their land, to be able to make a home in their land, not to be losing it. And that scene for me, them really touching the land, seeing their feet in, in that mud and the way that they're constructing that way that people have done for many, many generations. And that continuation of was also for me, I was seeing like hope, you know, this is what beauty could feel like to a father, to a mother that is looking at their children this is what beauty and hope could look like to mothers and fathers, to be able to see their children building that home in the land. I think for Muhammad, it seems that hope resides in the idea of leaving. There's the scene with him and two other boys who are talking about how they're going to leave, and there's talk of a smuggler, and it's clear they're not all on the same page, but Mohammed seems pretty determined to leave. And then there's a scene, and I think it is with Mohammed, where it's a very evocative scene where he's in a darkened room and he shuts all the shutters in this room and walks out. And then we see him with a kind of bundle over his shoulder. This is the end of the film. He's standing by the road and you see all these giant trucks going by. And as they disappear, then he disappears off frame. Can you talk about these last sequences and 
how you decided that this is where you wanted to leave the audience. When he enters that room with all of those windows, for the first time when you see him, that's when Hashim Abdi is saying his poem, reciting his poem, or expressing. It, it truly felt to me as if this was the sort of the, the soul of Hashim Abdi and all those voices of adults. I don't know that this is what I was thinking. <laughs> Whatever comes through at the end, it, it didn't matter. I just wanted to approximate, suggest at the end of the day. This is the world that Muhammad is living in. This is the feelings that he has in, in his heart. There's also thinking about the mother. When Muhammad Hashim says, you knew about my dreams, only you knew about my dreams. And you have Muhammad standing there. So I am thinking that Muhammad is always thinking of his mother because that's what he's telling me. He always had so many things that he wanted to say to his mom, but never was able to. And I gave him the Zoom and I said, whatever you want to say to her, you can do it. And because that also could become a little bit cathartic to be able to speak of something that is causing so much pain inside, taking it out. And, and that's what he did. And for him to end in that place as well, this was the world that he was living in. This was the world where Hashim Abdi's voices exist because that is one adult voice that is telling him, don't do this or do this. Don't think about the chats. Don't even imagine that. In the absence of that mother, in the absence of that, perhaps that relationship with the father, these are the voices that Muhammad hears when he's talking with Ibrahim. How can I get to Egypt? Or when he's talking to Muhammad Hashim. And these are the voices that ultimately conjure his world, that feed him. So when he decides to leave, so he leaves those that for me, that world was contained in that place. So he leaves that, that space. You talked about time before. There's a nonlinear aspect to the film, clearly. At, at some point, I thought maybe when he disappears off screen, actually, the next scene is perhaps the first scene we see in the movie, which is him skipping across the muddy water. Maybe that's where he ends up, is just that joyous moment of skipping across the, the mud in this kind of timeless celebration. There is a lot of circularity that I was thinking of when we were editing. And definitely, it, it is in those same spaces that you see the beginning and the end. It, they bookend the film. So if you end up thinking that, oh, okay, probably he didn't leave. Or... Probably he did. We don't know because that is the state of mind that he finds himself in all the time. Am I leaving? Am I not leaving? Am I going? That uncertainty. It strikes me that you too had uncertainty. This was a 10-year journey to make the film. I think I read somewhere that it required an act of radical self-confidence on your part because so much was unknown about whether and where you might get to with the film eventually. Can you talk about the film as an act of radical self-confidence. <laughs> when I say that this film truly taught me so much, it gave me so much, that is precisely what I meant. And when I say radical self-trust, to me, it was about growing as a human being and growing as an artist too. Because in this journey, there are so many things that come in the way that challenge you so viscerally that it either breaks you or you grow. <laughs> that is what happens. The way that I was approaching this film at the beginning was, oh, maybe if I could show this to someone, maybe we can get a little funding and maybe we can hire a DP and maybe I can hire a producer because I, I had just started filming and, and I asked, you know, some people, so how, how does one make a film? Like what happens? Oh, you need a producer. That was the thing. So that was the way I was thinking. And when I approached some producers, 
I, I realized that nobody truly wanted to make this film. First of all, most people were not interested, you know, like, oh, okay, that's nice, but not interested. Or if they were, it was about that money perhaps would come with a lot of strings attached, starting from the vision of the film. What is this film going to be? Uh, many people kind of um, envisioned it as sort of like the narcos of Africa or Ethiopia or something like that. More of a drug war related, something like that, that I so realized that, that it was going to have to be me if I was going to make the film the way I wanted it, the way I envisioned it, then I was going to have to show up like there's no tomorrow for this. And that is what requires that radical self-trust. And that is what requires that incredible trust and that intuition, because I had to have that intuition that guides me in the absence of either funding or producer or this or that. So that's what I meant. And there are many challenges, including, of course, you become incredibly destitute because every two cents that you have, you're putting it on this. And forget anybody else believing in it. Even you are having so much doubt. The doubt is killing you. Because then you suffer because you realize, my God, why do I have to be this person here? That was for a moment. And, and those are the challenges. But then when you finally have a resolve and you realize that you are perhaps the producer that you've been looking for, that you are perhaps the cinematographer that you were looking for and you didn't have money to hire, then everything starts working in a whole different way because then you apply myself into learning about this camera or learning about this lens and learning about what moves me and learning of in tandem, not just craft and not just producing and not just budgeting, but also learning to trust yourself. That was the most important thing in order for me to finish this film because doubt and fear will have their way at you if you are doing this by yourself. That is, that was my experience. And so when I say radical self-trust, it's not in a way of bragging about anything. No, it's a matter of survival to trust yourself in the face of everything and to be able to get rid of the voices that are adding to that doubt all the time, you know, to clean um, house in a way so that you can focus and start having conversations with your creator, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's it. I think that ultimately the spirit of Fadai applies to you and your journey as well, this sense that you're going to be all right. And I think anyone who has seen the film and those who will see the film we'll see that you've done a whole lot better than all right. You've made a film for the ages. So congratulations to you, Jessica. Thanks so much for sharing your journey with us today. We really appreciate it and, and wish you all the best. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You guys have been really amazing. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Jessica. Beautiful, beautiful film. Thank you for creating this space for us to talk about this film. Really appreciate it. Do you have anyone you want to thank in particular? I know that it's a collaborative enterprise creating a documentary like this. Yeah, I would love to thank Dr. Mohammed Nur Hussein, who is a very good friend, one of my father's best friends, who truly encouraged me so much when it really felt so far away. He really saw and felt what I was trying to do, I would really love to say thank you so much to him. Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary film that you've seen in the past or recently that you think doesn't get the attention that it should? There is this film that it does get some attention, but not as much as possible. It's something that always comes up to me and it really 
whispers to me all the time, every time. It's uh, called The House is Black by, by Farug, uh, Farugzad, an Iranian poet that is just generous and giving and healing. Thank you.